Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday for Sunday, August 20th, 2023. We've got another great show for you this week as members of the Media Academy of Financial Services and Government are set to break down all the news and events of the week. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode. We are in Sunday. But if you're tired for the same old story, We're going to kick things off with a look at what is happening on Capitol Hill. There's a lot these days to break it all down. The Legal Eagles, David Levine, Kevin Walsh, both are principals with Groom Law Group. That's an employee benefits law firm based in Washington, D.C. Eagles, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Jeff, as always, thanks for having us. Welcome to the deep dog days of summer. So, you know, in the deep dog days of summer, there's always something going on. So we're, we're ready for it today. Yeah, let's uh, let's head over to Mr. Walsh. Uh, Kevin, I know there's a lot you want to unpack here. Uh, uh, pension risk transfer. What's top of mind for you this morning as we take a look at uh, upcoming regs? Yeah, so top of mind this week is, you know, what's going on with Secure 2.0 guidance? And, and you know, there's a, a fair amount of guidance that that Secure 2.0 has essentially said the, the Labor Department has to create. And then there's other guidance ex that's expected from Treasury. Um, so kind of top of my mind is the Labor Department guidance. And, and there's really two areas where DOL is working pretty rapidly to try to get stuff done that they were told to do as a result of Secure 2.0. Um, the first area is with respect to disclosures. And Secure 2.0 pointed out that you know 401k plans and pension plans uh, currently are required to send a whole lot of papers to people and that, you know, not only does not all of it get read, but some of it's sent to people who have, have chosen not to participate in the plan. Um, and, you know, that the disclosures possibly need to be streamlined. Uh, last week, the Labor Department put out a request for information uh, where they asked a whole bunch of questions related to disclosures and signaled that there may be a number of regulatory projects forthcoming uh, where disclosure changes could be made. Uh, the second area where the Labor Department's pretty active right now as a result of Secure 2.0 is with respect to pension risk transfers. And for employers who offer a defined benefit pension plan, there aren't really many ways to you know, stop sponsoring a plan. Because if you freeze benefits, you still have legacy workers. Um, if you cash folks out, you know that, that can be an option at times. And kind of the other way to you know, wind down a pension plan is to purchase annuities from an insurance company where instead of the pension plan agreeing to provide the benefits, the insurance company agrees to provide the annuity. And, you know, that system has worked pretty well. Uh, the Labor Department issued um, guidance or sub-regulatory guidance back in 1995. And since 1995, no participant has suffered or no annuitant uh, who has been an annuitant as a result of a pension risk transfer transaction has, you know, not gotten paid as a result of an insurance company failure. Um, but in Secure 2.0, the Labor Department, in, cons in consultation with the ERISA Advisory Council, was directed to review that guidance that came out in 1995 and determine whether or not, you know, it should be changed or it needs to become more protective. Um, under that guidance, 
uh, plan fiduciaries are told to purchase the safest available annuity unless, you know, due to cost, it wouldn't make sense to purchase that annuity. And as it's been interpreted, a number of insurance companies can be considered safest available, um, you know, if they clear certain hurdles, if they appear to be comparably safe. And so right now, the Labor Department is studying the issue, the ERISA Advisory Council is studying the issue, and there's some likelihood that, you know, by the end of the year, we'll see a report to Congress and possible changes. You know, it, it would be pretty frustrating if we saw changes to the interpretive bulletin at the end of the year, I guess for two reasons. One is the lack of losses we've seen with participants in the last 30 years. Uh, the other reason would be that we really haven't had any open comment process, comment period with the Labor Department. Um, you know, it hasn't asked for input from the regulated community, although the advisory council has asked for input. So I think we're going to have to wait and see. But I, I think we can expect a report to Congress by the end of the year that talks about pension risk transfer generally. Uh, David, you want to build on these two or do you want to pivot to Treasury guidance? I think you did a great job, Kevin. And I know Jeff doesn't want to have us on for a 40-minute segment, so I'll pivot <laughs> if that works. works I do. Me. I do. I just don't think that it's a lot to digest for the audience. So I do love fair, talking to you guys. Fair enough. So I'll pivot. Uh, picking up from my friend, Mr. Walsh here, the other side of the coin is Secure 2.0. There's a lot going on. And one of there's just so many questions about implementation that are out there. And a lot of this is really the IRS's bailiwick. As we've talked to you and the listeners before about, one of the biggest items out there are the requirement that catch-up contributions be Roth starting next year. This topic keeps going and going and going. I can get in the administrative weeds of this, Jeff, about people who have two elections. How do you convert them over? It's a it's it's messy, is a nice way to put it. And we we have a number of trade groups have, we've done it for some trade group clients, have said, please give us guidance, give us something, hopefully some transition relief something that allows us to at least implement because to implement this $145,000 sort of cap on people who can do pre-tax catch-up contributions, it it is um, challenging to say the least. And the reality is we live in an echo chamber in our world. We've heard this for years. You've heard Kevin and I talk about this. There was a rumor that the IRS would have everything out by have something out on this by the end of June. That didn't happen. There was a rumor there would be the first two weeks of August, and everybody really believed it. And the echo chamber kind of fed it, but it hadn't. Now what we're hearing is we're most likely to hear something around Labor Day. We'll see. But the real concern is in order to process this, it involves a tap dance for between your payroll system and your payroll provider, which are the ones who really know if someone earned $145,000 from you in the year before for, for, for FICA tax purposes, and your record keeper who then has to potentially do data feeds about how much is catch up, how, and, and, and is it Roth, is it non-Roth, and you uh, internally and messaging for your own employees. Because if you have employees where you're gonna have to turn on and say, I'm sorry, you can't do catch up pre-tax, it's going to be Roth, and they suddenly get hit with it, they're going to ask questions. It's legally required, so the plans have to do it. So for right now, we're in a bit of an alphabet soup. And what we're hoping for at this moment to really get to the TLDR, the too long to read version of this, is simply put, everybody's making a best faith effort, but there's lots of hope that there will be transition relief, and I would hope that there would be. The IRS has been good about that. 
so that if people can't just get it perfectly right starting in January, there's time to clean it all up. So for right now, do your best is my suggestion, but recognize that we may have to pivot a little bit when we finally get that IRS guidance. Yeah, and thinking about all that, just to kind of build off of what you and Kevin said, David, there's a lot of builds, technological builds that may have to happen. You kind of have to figure out what what direction you're going to head in in order to administer all this. Having that guidance really helps. But as you said, if you get some level of transition relief, you can clean things up in the back end. Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. Always great to break it down. And I knew you guys would have some news. Um, and we always appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back again on the program next week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you, listeners. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. And recently I sat down with Joanna Cole to discuss how genes may shape our food preferences. Let's give it a listen. Joanne, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, let, let's talk about food patterns. And, uh, you know, as I'm shopping at the local grocery store, picking up certain items, and I feel like in some ways I'm kind of drawn to those items, especially that package of Doritos. You and the team have done a lot of research on gene patterns. How do they shape our food decisions, our, our food choices? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And there's one thing very important to keep in mind is that so much of the foods we choose to eat is driven by things other than our genes, right? Our environment, the way we were raised, food availability, culture, upbringing. And so that actually really does make up the majority of the decisions. Um, but interestingly, our genes do account for a small amount of our flavor preferences and our adaptive behavioral preferences. And so um, although they're small, they tend to be strong. Um, and I could give like an easy example. Yeah, sure. Um, the one of the classic examples that many people know about is the cilantro gene. 
Um, right. So there is an olfactory receptor in your nose that senses and binds to aroma compounds in cilantro. And so if you have a certain version of this olfactory receptor gene, you may perceive cilantro as a soapy flavor as opposed to a fruity flavor. So that's a great example of different people having different gene versions of, an, of the cilantro olfactory receptor gene. And it binding cilantro different and that like sends different signals to the brains and so they perceive different flavor yeah very interesting i the one i thought you were going to go for is chocolate because i have a craving for chocolate i'm sure that there is something in there in my genes that make me want to crave chocolate other than i like the sweetness uh let me ask you uh, you know human beings and again i'm not i'm a lay person so i don't have your level of expertise but my understanding is humans have evolved over time we're all kind of mutation mutations how have our genes, I'm assuming our genes have changed over time and our preferences have changed over time. Maybe, you know, we were nut and food people or nut and uh, meat people. Now, over generations and generations of humans, our genes have evolved to want different things. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a whole area of research that focuses on evolutionary adaptation to food seeking behavior or food preferences. It's not my personal area of expertise, but there absolutely has been changes over time. And, and again, a classic example of that would be, you know, lactase persistence, be, being able to, as an adult, still break down um, lactose sugars. Um, and so some people, depending on their background, genetic background and evolutionary migration patterns may or may not be able to break down lactose as adults or not. And there's many more examples of that. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating. How do, how do you link the research you and the team have done to what's going on today? Or, or can you, uh, we have preferences for certain types of foods. They're in our genetics. There's also socioeconomic factors, but there are diseases like diabetes, obesity, cancer. Is there a link between the work that you're doing and some of these other diseases, for example, having a predisposition, for example? Yeah, so that's a, that's a complicated question, but I do think that's the that's the goal, right? I mean, that that's the goal of wanting to study this is so that we can better improve human health, um, and hopefully, potentially through personalizing nutrition therapy, so that people are sticking to better guidelines for eating healthier, making it easier to eat healthier, so they can decrease their their risk of these metabolic diseases like diabetes and obesity or cancer. And so I specifically work a little bit in the diabetes and metabolic disease space. And one of the things I'm interested in is if I can identify the genes that are directly involved in why a person is eating what they're eating, say because of flavor preferences, which have a really strong impact on whether someone's going to buy that food or enjoy that food or not enjoy that food. Um, and so I wanna capitalize on those really strong flavor preferences and see if we can use them as a tool to help people find new foods that maybe have similar compounds that they know that they have a positive reward response to because of their genetic profile um, and maybe give them better guidance on healthier eating patterns. Or for example, if there were two foods and one happens to be have a lower glycemic index than the other, but they have similar flavor compounds and elicit a similar reward response in the brain, then maybe we can help guide people to the healthier choice um, based on their genetic profile and pre genetic predisposition to different flavors. So I think it's a little bit, I mean, it's early, this is very early research, but I think it's an exciting direction we can go. Um, actually, I have a, a, another really amazing idea to take sure. this, the, um, 
if we could identify, so as I mentioned, the olfactory receptor, it's a receptor, it binds kind of like a lock and key um, to different flavor compounds. And so these are natural flavor compounds in different foods, and they tend to bind to taste receptors or smell receptors. But what if we could derive natural or synthetic compounds that also bind? Like, could we alter someone's response to different foods and flavors? Can we have like a shaker of like the, the compounds that make someone positively react to food and put that on healthy food? So that's kind of like a pie in the sky idea, but that would be a very cool biological intervention to guide people towards healthier food. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news, lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, aging, so much more, all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRNAM. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.